0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Welcome to the State of Health, the podcast where patients put healthcare decision makers and thought leaders in the hot seat. I'm Gunnar Siason. Today on the show, we talk to Dr. Bill Smith from the Boston-based Pioneer Institute, where he is a visiting fellow in the life sciences. Dr. Smith has 25 years of experience across government and the private sector, which included 10 years at Pfizer as vice president of public affairs and policy where he was responsible for Pfizer's corporate strategies in the US policy environment. Dr. Smith often writes and opines about highly specialized drugs for small patient populations, their cost effectiveness and overall healthcare reform. Today on the show, we dive into the nuanced world of health economics. Let's talk about the state of orphan drugs. All right, Bill. Thanks for thanks for coming on the
0: show, Gunner. My pleasure. Glad to be here.
1: So why don't we just jump right into it? Uh, we've had a lot of great episodes over the last few weeks of the State of Health, talking about health economics, drug value, coverage. Um, so you're a great person to 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 add on to that. Uh, a lot of your your research focuses on orphan drugs or drugs targeting rare targeting rare conditions. Uh, and over the last few years. It seems like more and more drugs for rare diseases are hitting the market. Uh, And many may come with some pretty daunting list price tags. Why why is that happening?
0: Well, it goes back a long way. Uh, It goes back to 1983 when Congress passed the Orphan Drug Act. Uh, There was concern the business model in the 70s and 80s for uh, the pharmaceutical industry was find a drug for millions of people. Right? We want millions of customers. If you find a drug where 3 million prescriptions are gonna be written and it costs $1,000 a year, you got a $3 billion drug. And there was rightful concern on the part of policymakers that they weren't looking to discover rare disease drugs. So they passed this orphan drug act in 1983, which um, made it, more profitable actually to find an orphan drug. You could write off 25% of your R&D costs as a tax credit. Um, You get seven years of market exclusivity, meaning the government's not going to pay, put a generic on the market to compete with your drug. So it's going to be more profitable. And rare disease drugs started ticking up. The approval started ticking up starting after that act, but they really accelerated over the last 10 years. And I think there are two reasons for that. One, the science has changed. So they mapped the human genome and it used to be the case, for example, that they'd look at lung cancer and they'd say, oh, lung cancer is one disease, it's for everybody. And then they discovered, wait a minute, there are all these different genome types within lung cancer. And they started carving up lung cancer patients into different groups, which made the universe of patients smaller by definition because suddenly there are 10 types of lung cancer, not one type. And they started inventing orphan drugs for these. Um, So the science changed, particularly with the genome, And they started discovering drugs for rare cancers. It's also true that from a commercial perspective, it became more attractive for companies to invent rare disease drugs because, to be frank, payers had a hard time restricting it. You know, if if you invent a new drug for cholesterol these days, chances are your health plan is going to force you to fail on some older drug uh, before you get the new branded drug. Uh, When it comes to rare disease drugs, many times they're the first drug in the class. So the payers can't do anything to restrict it. They basically, it's either you get it or you don't. And, And payers have had a hard time restricting these types of rare disease drugs. And I think from a commercial perspective, the biopharma companies know that and have poured more money into rare disease. So between the Orphan Drug Act, the science, and the commercial advantages of a rare disease drug, those things are all driving the number of approvals. And last year in 2020, We had 55% of the new drugs that were approved by the FDA were orphan drugs. And orphan drugs is defined as having a patient universe of less than 200,000. So orphan rare disease drug is an interchangeable term, but the technical legal definition under the Orphan Drug Act is patients less than 200,000 patients in the universe. So I I want to push in something you
1: said here. You, You talked a little bit about how Bioforma knows that they have some leverage over uh you know payers when 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 they're coming out with a brand new novel drug i, I mean is that a perfectly competitive system i mean you're, we're talking about you know uh you know a three hundred and fifty thousand dollar drug here you know some of these price tags some of the price tags associated with these drugs are astronomical uh are, are they sustainable and is the leverage a, a good thing is it a bad thing
0: well it's been a it's been a push and pull to be honest i mean a, what happened is, you know, in the early 80s, the only data available on a drug was found in the clinical trial data. So basically the manufacturers had the payers over a barrel. They could point to the drug and say, it's effective in clinical trials. But then what came along was big data. So United Healthcare and these companies figured out, hey, we can search our medical records, de-identified, and we can look and see how well these drugs work with different populations. And we could search 3 million records, data that's even more robust than the clinical trials. So then the health plan started getting the manufacturers over a barrel because they could say, hey, we looked at the data, You know, it's not that effective for people 50 to 60, so we're gonna restrict it. Um, and then so the push and pull happened again and the manufacturers said, okay, if you're gonna restrict all of these big blockbuster drugs, we're gonna go for rare disease drugs. And, and payers have reacted to that. Now they're trying different things. They're raising co-insurance, they're doing these cost effectiveness studies, they're doing different things to react to, to try to push back on the pull that the, the uh, pharma industry
1: has achieved. So you, you're sort of leading into my next question here, I think. Uh, my question was, are insurers happy with this trend? Um, but you're, you're also talking a little bit about the nuance, I think, associated with the cost of a drug, where There's a list price, there's co-pays, there's co-insurance. We had Peter Kolchinsky on the show a few weeks ago, and he was talking a lot about out-of-pocket costs and how during the pandemic, the government went in and said, no, 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 insurance, you can't be charging these co-pays when we're talking about, uh, you know, COVID tests, COVID treatments, COVID vaccines as like sort of this, you know, aha moment as, okay, well, that's actually a barrier for patients to get access to care and drugs. Uh, You know, where do you come down on this? You know, it it sounds like it's a little bit of a a give and take from two very distinct industries within the broader healthcare sector.
0: Yeah, I listened to Peter's podcast and I was very much in agreement with him. I think there needs to be some insurance reform. Um, It's troubling to me that a patient can go into a hospital and get a knee replacement and pay $500 in coinsurance. But if they, have, they require a gene therapy that's going to save their life, they may pay $5,000 in coinsurance. I just, I just find that troubling. That's not what insurance is supposed to be. If you get a rare disease and you require an expensive therapy, insurance is supposed to cover it. That's kind of the point of it. Um, and I think the insurance benefit design hasn't caught up with the fact that we're having so many new approvals for rare disease drugs and orphan drugs and that are, that are more expensive. Um, And, you know, just as an aside, you raised this question, is it affordable? And the answer is it's affordable for the foreseeable future. Um, Between 2021 and 2025, we're going to save $166 billion in the U.S. healthcare system because of drugs going generic. So Lipitor was the flagship drug. When I was at Pfizer, it sold $94 billion when it was a branded drug, greatest selling drug of all time. And when it went generic, it went from $4 a pill to $0.04 a pill. So that's a lot of billions and billions of savings, and that's happening with a lot of blockbuster drugs. They're going off patent, and that 166 billion gives some room to pay for these more expensive rare disease drugs. And by definition, these rare disease drugs are for smaller populations, so they are more affordable uh, because there's only you know in some in some cases there are one patient that's taken the drug in the, the entire health plan. So um, I, I'm I, for the next five years. I could be wrong. Twenty years from now, and this explosion in rare disease drugs could make a make a fiscal problem for the healthcare system. But right now, for the next five years, I don't see it just because the patent expirations are giving us some headroom to pay for these things.
1: So you're encouraging a little bit of a longer term view when we look at drugs. But you know, I, I think people are people in groups are are, you know, whether rightly or wrongly out there Discussing drug pricing and drug affordability. And it's sort of like a hot button topic that whenever you're turning on the news, you know, or you open up the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, there's always some story about, you know, someone who cannot access a drug for whatever reason, whether or not they can afford their copay or their insurance plan won't cover it. Um, you know, we had a, a few weeks ago on the show, we had a, a Canadian CF patient advocate on the show. And he was talking about his showdown with Canada's drug pricing agency uh, with regards to access to a new CF drug. You know, the United Kingdom has an independent drug arbiter. And some people you know, may look at them as a slowdown from when you know patients in the, in the U.S. can get access to breakthrough drugs and, and when patients in the U.K. can. Um, what, what are the groups doing? What, why are they doing it? And do you think they have a meaningful place? Uh, in in this conversation around drug access and affordability and pricing?
0: Yeah, well, I think that the the problem in Canada is different from the problem in the US, although we may develop the problem in Canada. The problem in Canada is you have a cost-effectiveness body that rates drugs and decides, hey, we might have to ration this drug because it's expensive. Um, And so what you have in some of these countries like the UK and Canada is you have these cost-effectiveness bodies, which really are just a fig leaf for rationing. Um, you know the assumptions they build into their model are designed to reach a preconceived conclusion, and that is drugs are not cost-effective, you need to lower the price. That's a different problem than in the U.S. U.S. has some of these groups doing it. ICER, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review in Boston is a nonprofit, but nobody's required to follow their cost-effectiveness reviews as they are in Canada and the U.K. The problem in the U.S. really is, uh, is twofold. One, there are people that have very high co-insurance rates so 9% of seniors pay more than $1,000 out of pocket. And as you know, seniors are a very politically active group, and that does not make them happy if they're paying $2,000 out of pocket for their drugs when they're supposed to be covered. And the other problem, of course, is the uninsured. If you're uninsured, you have no insurance, and you get a rare disease, you got a problem. Um, and, and we should figure out a way to help these two groups of people, the uninsured and patients with very high coinsurance. But it's a different problem. And I think it's a manageable problem because this is a small percentage of the patients that are paying high coinsurance, one or 2%, because they have a rare or expensive disease drug and they happen to have high co-insurance. So I think from a public policy perspective, this is a solvable problem in the US. And I wouldn't wanna go in the direction of Canada and the UK where they just ban whole classes of drugs because they say they're not cost-effective and patients don't get access to them. Um, I think that's a very cold and cruel system. And uh, I'd much rather have the
1: US system we'll be right back with bill smith well that's another i guess interesting point is yeah i you know i i think uh, a lot of people you know look to foreign uh, healthcare systems and with regards to access as as a measure and barometer of success uh you know whether or not that's you know truly the case yeah i think it's uh you know, from, from my experience, to, you know, looking at drug access and affordability, I have been someone that is always concerned with the next drug, right? Like, what is the next drug that's going to improve my life? Um, not to dissuade anything that's happened in the past, um, and, and to me, I think that's where I think that this argument is kind of like a a clash of timelines, right? You know, you have um, you know cost effectiveness arbiters looking at these decisions from a budgetary perspective in a very short period of time, uh, when in reality, the goal of, I think, healthcare is to keep people alive for as long as possible. Uh, and I, I do want to talk about some of those those cost effectiveness analysis, because a lot of your research is also focused on that area where. We're hinging on somewhat of a, a nuanced health economic tool called the quality, the Quality Adjusted Life Year, which for our listeners, they know that I'm, I have been a critic of, uh, which has a tough history in the United States uh, because many think it would be ripe for challenge under the Americans with Disabilities Act. But it's sort of the gold standard across the world. Uh, why, why is the disability community up in arms about the Quality Adjusted Life Year, the Um uh, and why, why is it used? Like, what, what does it do?
0: Yeah, so the quality, really, the, at, from a 30,000 foot perspective, they measure the value of drugs from two perspectives. How many life years does it give you? How, how much longer do you live if you take this drug? So that's longevity is one pole of their standard. The second is, what's your quality of life? Is your quality in life improved dramatically? Do you get out of a wheelchair? Do you, are you able to move around better? Do you have less pain? So they use those two standards. Um, And the problem for the disability community is, for example, if you invented a drug for a person living with disabilities and it gave them 20 more years of life, but it didn't improve their quality of life, they still had pain, they still were non-ambulatory, they still couldn't get around as easily, the drug's going to kind of get a mediocre score from from a quality perspective because it doesn't improve quality of life. And the problem with that is if you're a, a disability patient, you're saying, wait a minute, this drug gives me 20 years of life. Why should it be discounted compared for a drug with a non-disabled person? Um, so it, there's kind of a discriminatory aspect to it that that basically, if you have to get 100% quality of life score on a drug, people living with disabilities are going to have a hard time getting that score, and and so they 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 are they they chafe under the quality, um, and the same is true with, with elderly people or, or older people. I mean, you know that. If you would, you're 70 years old and you get a drug that's going to give you 10 more years of life, that's only 10 life years. And a, a, a drug for a 30 year old that might get him to 80, that's 50 life years. So that drug's going to get a better rating. And maybe you say, uh, oh, it should get a better rating. It's given 50 years." But to the 70 year old, that's small consolation, right? His drug is discounted. It's said, it's told, it's not that valuable compared with the other drugs. And and uh, so the quality sounds good in in in. Um, it, 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 from a common sense perspective, we want drugs that are going to make people live longer and live better. But when you get into the practical realities of it, the different patient populations are affected in different ways, um, and some of those ways are problematic.
1: So, when, when you're talking about scoring, though, is it is it uh, scoring towards like coverage? Is it scoring towards what? You know what what is the you know what is the the goalpost that uh, is is trying to be achieved when when a quality calculation is done on a drug.
0: Yeah, yeah. so it, it, basically the, the arbitrariness and subjectiveness of the quality creeps in when you realize that they put a value, a monetary value of a year of life lived in good health. Uh, they say, and it's different in the UK and it's different in different countries, but in the United States, ICER, the, the body that uses the, um, the quality, says that a year of life lived in good health is worth $150,000. So then they look at drug prices and they say okay well you know if, if it doesn't get you to a full year of life what should it be worth if it doesn't improve your quality of life what should but the $150,000 threshold determines everything. And that's somewhat subjective, right? I mean if you decided a year of life lived in good health as I would for my children is worth $10 million, then most drugs would be cost effective. And if you said, oh, well, you know a year of good health a year of life lived in good health is only worth $1,000, then very few drugs would be cost effective. So that threshold and where you put that threshold down in the quality determines what the outcomes are going to be. And, and my suspicion is that ICER puts at $150,000 because they know most drugs coming out are going to be rated as not cost effective, and they're going to be able to say this, this drug price should be lower.
1: And um, so, I guess the, the proof we're putting for, for countries that are using quality to actually determine coverage, because in the US we, we do not do that. In countries where the quality is used to determine coverage, patients can face delays for their drugs value coming in on the wrong side of the quality, which I guess goes back to where. know personally i feel about this and, and and others in the disability community feel about this because when a rating like the quality that is has some subjectivity to it is used it can it it can force a choice on what drug to cover and what drug to not cover, uh, and of course emotions get involved in it because when you're talking about a human being and uh, a person's life, then you know the, everything is just is suddenly magnified as it probably right, rightfully should. And, and just a couple of weeks ago, Democratic Congresswoman Katie Porter, well known for her positions on healthcare reform and drug pricing, actually came out and said that the metric devalues the lives of people with disabilities and is calling for other formulas or you know algorithms to be used is, is the quality falling out of favor in the u.s is there sort of like waves of resistance against it uh and are there more realistic approaches to understanding what the value of drugs can provide to patients in both the near term and then as peter Kolchinski said a few weeks ago in the long term to a societal perspective when drugs do eventually go generic
0: yeah well i hear, sure hope so i sure hope it's fallen out of favor um and you know, I don't. I don't kind of see it as a partisan issue. Um, that there are many, many, many people on the left side of the spectrum that want to protect patient access. That look at the quality and say, "Wait a minute, this thing doesn't work very well, um, and it's it's not going to protect vulnerable populations." And I, I just wrote a paper on quality and cancer, and I kind of encourage people to go read the narrative on what happened in the UK with cancer therapies. Um, The parliament woke up one day and the UK uses the quality to judge the value of cancer therapies. And in 2011, the parliament woke up one day to read a study that said the the quality of cancer care in the UK is the worst in the developed world. And the reason it was the worst is because the quality was knocking out all the newest therapies and not making them available. And this, this was a a political landslide of the thunderclap in Great Britain. People went crazy. Breast cancer patients started marching on Parliament, and Parliament was so fed up with the quality that they said, you know what? We're banning the use of quality, rate the value of cancer therapies. They just banned it in law, and they basically said, we're going to start paying for the newest and latest uh, cancer drugs. So the quality does have the effect that exactly as you described it delays patient access to new medicines, and the, the country in the world where patients get access to the newest and latest medicine, the number one country is the US. That's followed by Germany and a few others, but those that use the quality tend to fall further behind. Uh, Germany does not use the quality, and they're second to the U.S. in patient access to new medicines.
1: I want to push on that that quickly. That you know, access to new medications in you know a, a societal sense that yeah, drugs are approved more more readily, but are high drug prices sustainable for? The country, you know, are are high drug prices sustainable for not, you know, not only patients but patient populations and a growing suite of you know highly specialized and personalized medications.
0: So when you have these uh, these single payer healthcare systems, you run into problems, right? Because they appropriate the money for the national health plan the year before, and it's a fixed budget, and then suddenly a new drug comes out, right? And then the manufacturer goes to the government and says, Will you cover this? And you know what they say it's not in my budget this year maybe next year in fact i had a i had a friend of pfizer who ran the uh ontario health uh system uh in a previous life previous career and she told me people would come to me with new drugs and it wouldn't be in my budget so i'd say you know what you need to do a study of patients between 30 and 50. and if you do that maybe next year i can find it in my budget and she would make something up just to push out access to that drug and, and that's just not a healthy system You know, in the U.S., health plans don't do that. If the drug is pretty effective and has good data, they're more likely to cover it than not. Um, And they're going to figure out a way to pay for it, whether it's premium increases or some other way to pay for it. But generally in the U.S., they make they make the the drug available. The state of health.
1: We'll be back in a minute. So I, I do want to talk about where, you know, we might be headed with this, you know, high healthcare is even more magnified, you know, this past year for certain than, than it ever has been. How can Americans have better access to healthcare, better access to drugs? Because I mean it's it's indisputable that, you know, there are people out there who cannot access drugs for one reason or another. Where where does reform need to begin? Uh, and how can it how can it be done?
0: Well, if I could wave a magic wand, I would have people <laughs> starting at age twenty one start to put money into health savings account. They don't age 21 to age 50. They're probably not utilizing healthcare care a lot. And that would build up and build up and build up and build up. When they started to have high utilization rates in their 50s or 60s, suddenly they'd have a big pot of money available to help pay co-insurance and co-pays and deductibles and all the all the other costs that, that, that they're going to incur. Um, moreover, they would also have skin in the game. Like they'd they'd have to actually withdraw money from the health savings account to, to pay for that new rare disease drug because, and they'd have to be convinced of its value before they took money out to do that. So, you know, again, these, these things are politically difficult to accomplish, but that would be my view. Give, put people in a position where they're saving a lot of money for their health costs later in life, and that they have a big nest egg of money that becomes available uh, when there start to be high utilizers. And, and, uh, and then they, they can make free choices about which medicines they want to pay for, whether they want, to, they want to go for the generic and save money or not. And then you have kind of a, a supply and demand operating um, and, and market forces operating when the consumers themselves are helping make the decision, not just the doctor and the third-party payer.
1: Got it. Well, Bill, thanks for thanks for coming on the show. Definitely appreciate this uh, journey into the world of health economics. Uh, definitely would love to get you back on here, uh, and we will we will see where this heads as we charge into this uh, lightning quick future of personalized uh, drugs for for people with orphan rare diseases.
0: My pleasure, Gunnar. Thanks for having me.
1: That's all for this week. Be sure to join us next week. New episodes come out every Wednesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at G17 Esiason, and you can check out my website at DonnerEsiason.com. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to The State of Health and then leave a rating and a review. A big thank you to Bill Smith for today's interview. The State of Health is produced by Bob Dwyer. Thanks to Odyssey for making this podcast possible. We'll see you next week.